Tēnā koutou, I'm Karen Hay. In 2015, the New Zealand Society of Authors commissioned the most recent interviews in its 30-year oral history project. It's these authors who will be sharing their experiences in the third season of the NZSA Oral History Podcast. David Hill is probably best known for his writing for children and young adults, but he's also a playwright, poet, adult novelist, columnist and critic. His books have been published in many countries and languages around the world, and he's won awards for his writing in New Zealand and overseas. David has generously mentored and encouraged new and emerging writers through the New Zealand Society of Authors and is the current NZSA President of Honour. David Hill has been a full-time writer now for over 30 years. However, like many writers, he began writing on the side while working as a secondary school teacher. In 2015, Deborah Shepherd interviewed David and asked what motivated him to write and publish his very early works. Rather than a very first thing, there are a series of things in different forms, genres. Okay? Um, in my first couple of years teaching, the listener was accepting freelance um, television comment. And I would write what in fact were, you know, the equivalent then of Diana Wichtel's wonderful television reviews now, mm. and submit them and occasionally get ones published. At the same time, I was writing poems and had some of them published in The Listener. So what a bizarre combination. And the odd poem, I had a couple in a magazine called Mate. Oh, yes. um, and then there were these things for Radio New Zealand and a lot of other stuff which was being rejected, you know. Um, so, so really, I guess I was making little tentative attempts in lots of different fields. And I've always been pleased with that because I guess to some extent I tried out a variety of skills or techniques yes. and I, I've found them all useful in one way or another. Mm. I've discarded some and mm. tried to work on others. It's impressive. Um, did you, was there any New Zealand literature at university? No, absolutely none, Deborah. Absolutely none. Mm. No. Um, we did things like um, pre-Shakespearean drama, Chaucer. Mm. Um, my thesis, my half thesis, was on Aldous Huxley, that sort of thing. Really? So yeah. Um, I had here um, false starts, lucky breaks, because <laughs> there can be a bit of both, can't there, in a yeah. writer's career? Um, the lucky break actually was um, one of the things I'd found was that as a, an English teacher, there were no plays available for junior classes. There weren't. They were reading things like The Winslow Boy. You know, um, that was all there was available for them. Senior classes, fifth form and upwards, had their exam plays. Junior ones, nothing except The Winslow Boy and incredibly old-fashioned and stodgy ones in assemblies of English plays written in the 1930s. That was all, you know, and even the Good classes found them dull. And I thought, I'll try and write a play for kids. And I wrote one on the boat coming back from England. I really did. And all I could think of to do was to type it out, run off about 30 copies, and do it with one of my third forms. And they liked it. And so where were you teaching? Um, I'd, been, I'd been at Takapuna Grand, sorry, Tamaki College. I had about five or six years probably seven, at Takapuna Grammar and 
then England, one term at Takapuna Grammar again, and then to Wingord High School. Right. There. Yeah. So, and what happened with these plays? Um, I sent them to Longman Paul, as they then were, and they published them. Wow. I was incredulous, absolutely in, incredulous, and yet at the same time, I knew they weren't too bad, and they just happened to fill a gap. That was all. And what so, sorts of topics? Oh, they were corny little things. One was about um, boys who apparently had vandalised a classroom and who hadn't. In fact, it was all a mistake. One was about a sort of a puppy love um, thing. A boy wants to ask a girl to the dance and go, goes about it all the wrong ways and eventually finds the right way. Um, they were formulaic in the sense I wanted a large cast, so just about everyone in the class had something to read. I wanted language which was reasonably realistic. Um, I wanted something that was reasonably contemporary. So I just drew on the teaching experience, and it was quite fun. And then, so did they get picked up and used in yes, schools? Yes, um, they're on Play Market's books, and about once every two years I still learn that Form 3 at so-and-so is going to do it as part of, you know, the... Kaikoura High School sort of drama festival type of thing, and I get paid $23. <laughs> so, Let's just plot this, um, the path from those, the plays mm. and Longman Paul. So that would be your first publication, like book publication. Uh, I'd done some textbooks for high schools. Um, right. with, um, I did one with a friend of mine. It was a series of, almost like a comprehension book, but it used strange sort of texts like poetry or driver's license forms or um, road signs, that sort of thing. But it was, um, it was at a time when the study of different texts and interpreting texts was very much part of the syllabus. Mm -hmm. So I did um, a couple of those. But yes, the plays would have been the first thing So like those that. earlier ones were published by like an educational? Yes, Longman Paul once again, oh, okay. yes. And yes. because the plays were for schools, they picked those up as well. So. What else had you done before you left teaching to um, write full-time in 1983? A lot of things. Uh, in some ways a lot, but I mean it was, Beth was immensely supportive. Um, when I look back now I shudder slightly. Um, I was having book reviews published, I'd had these plays, um, I'd written a few more, you know, sort of article type things for the radio, um, I had the textbooks, and I was thinking of going full-time and we talked about it, you know, but it really didn't seem as though it would happen for a few years yet, especially since the kids were just um, 12 and 7, I think, at that stage they would have been, yeah. Then two things happened. One was that um, an ICI bursary was offered, mm -hmm. um, and it was for $3,000 for um, a new writer with a project, and I applied for it, um, saying I wanted to write a book of short stories for adults, and I did have two or three I'd written by that stage, and to my genuine incredulity, I did get it, you know, and $3,000 in 1981, whatever it was, was, you know, a reasonable sum. The other thing was that, um, I'd sent some of these radio stories and including kids' stories and um, I got a letter, and I won't name them if you don't mind, from a very, very unsupportive producer saying, thank you for these stories, um, we will not use them, you might consider sending one, underlined, one of them to a program called Grandpa's Place, which we are beginning. It was a really pretty... Mm. 
you know, depressing letter. So I sent one, it was accepted, um, and the producer um, offered me more and more work, and I ended up writing quite a lot of scripts for Grandpa's Place. What was, was meant by Grandpa's Place? It was Place? a preschool radio programme. For, for pre, it was for preschoolers, mm -hmm. um, and it was paying very well. Oh, yes. Very well. Those were the days when they paid you a sum for the first broadcast, a quarter of that sum for the repeat, and the full sum again for a re-repeat. Mm. And that was astonishing, and I was so lucky, you know, so... Mm. So it really was entirely possible to... Yeah, quite suddenly it looked as though it could be possible. Later. So we decided I'd try a year and see what how it went. What year are we talking? Um, I had the bursary in 1981. Yes. I went back and taught in 1982, and Grandpa's Place, I was writing a lot for it by that stage, um, and we decided we'd try 1983. And it worked... And so we decided we'd try 1984, and now 31 years later. Mm. So, and in the meantime, you had um, you'd published in 1980, and in 1981, you'd published the 70s connection. Yes, with Elizabeth. With Elizabeth that's right. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. that's the sort of thing I should have mentioned. Sorry, you know that sort of work as well. So. I think that's, I think that work that you did, that early work, is fabulous. Um, it was a lovely anthology. Yes, of Mac and Day, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's really relevant, even you know, even today, to go back to um, to get a real feel for what was topical and what how the styles people wrote in in the seventies. It got me reading such a lot of New Zealand writing. So how did that come about? Elizabeth was asked um, if she would consider assembling an anthology, and she asked if I'd like to work with her, and I was flattered and delighted. So at what point did you meet Elizabeth? Um, she's been Beth's friend ever since they were at high school together here in New Plymouth. Um, when we were coming down to Taranaki during the years we lived in Auckland, um, then we would go and see Elizabeth and Michael yes. um, occasionally, of course, and um, she just became an acquaintance and a friend of mine. And it was a whole, it was a collection of stories, poems, non-fiction. Yes, non-fiction, quite a lot of non-fiction. And photographs? Yes, um, the photographs are mainly by Alistair Grant, who's a surgeon and a good friend of Elizabeth's. Mm -hmm. um, and Elizabeth's got a very quirky eye for the visual, so she chose most of the photographs from Alistair's collection. And there were photographs by other people too. And just looking at who was in that... There were, well, it's like a roll call of New it Zealand is, writers. Yeah. Graham Lay, Ian Weddy, Frank Sargison, Loris Edmund, Tony Reid, Peter Bland, Brian Turner, Elizabeth, Alistair Campbell, Hone Tufare, Noel Hilliard, Ruth Dallas, Louis Johnson, Vincent O'Sullivan, Dennis Glover, Rachel McAlpine, Roger Hall, Rosemary McLeod, yeah. who listener pieces, um, Edith Campion, Morris G, Morris Shadbolt, Patricia Grace, Tom Scott, Janet Frame. It's fabulous. Yes. So um, that was a great first It was a wonderful collection thing to of, put together, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember we laying them all out, all the extracts on the floor um, at Elizabeth's place and trying to sort out the sort of order they could go. And I still remember doing that, actually, mm. and, and watching it come together. So it was... And was it quite nice to collaborate on something? She was very, very good to work with, very good indeed. And at first I thought Elizabeth was politely deferring to me over some things, saying, oh, you're good at this. And then I realised I was reasonably competent at choosing order and 
sort of juxtaposing pieces, that sort of thing. So, and yeah, so I enjoyed doing that aspect of it mm. too. Because then you did another book together, which That's was right. um, Taranaki. Taranaki. Yes. I was I was um, reading that as the plane was approaching today, <laughs> but it was a bit cloudy. Um, but I like it because what comes through in your writing is your absolute love of this place. <laughs> I fell for it, yes. Hmm. And I was thinking about how your books are read in France and Germany and Korea and... Some strange little countries, Australia, yeah. the mm. UK, the US, um, where else, Slovenia? Or, Slovenia is the, is the enchanting one, yes. There's a, a really wonderful husband and wife publishing company there. and Yes, they, they published about eight of my, my teenage books. It's amazing. Denmark, so. too? Yeah, yeah. And the Netherlands. And to mm. think that these children are reading these stories that are set so strongly in this place... Mm. This particular part of yes, New Zealand, it's a, it's a quite a quite a thought, isn't it? That they're getting to know the feel. Of it would be nice, yeah, if that's the case. The Americans are the difficult ones, of course. They're convinced that no American child can understand new terminology, so words have to be changed. You know, footpath to sidewalk and lift to elevator and that sort of thing. Um, but yes, I, I hope some of the, if you like, exotic nature of New Zealand gets through to them. And just the beauty of the landscape. Surely. Yes, yes, that too. Uh, I guess, I mean, what other overseas publishers are looking for, of course, are narratives and people whom their kids can relate to. And I, I think it's that, actually. Um, I'm not much of a landscape writer when it comes to young adult fiction because I don't think kids want landscape unless it's an integral part of the action mm -hmm. so th then it does come through I know the bush in some of them and mm. um, the orchard and um, and the swimming hole in yeah. the river runs sort of thing just the the cows and the yeah yeah that's right the tone of New Zealand life mm. yeah the things which you don't realize are special until you go overseas and see where they're not that sort of thing mm. dairies the, the, the re concept mm. of that sort of thing and and the nature of a footpath in summer um so special in new zealand you know light and um colors of trees and such like things and so. a swing bridge yeah and a swing place bridge. under it exactly. a hidey hole under yeah, it yeah. yeah a shingle river bed mm. and a, a track going down from the end of a bridge so see you simon that that um, was the story of the, the young boy who has yeah, that's right. muscular dystrophy. Yeah, and yeah. tell us about where the idea came from. Um, his real name was Nick, um, which I'm, his parents are quite happy for people to know. Um, and he was one of my daughter Helen's best friends at high school. There was a little group of them. They were sweet, kind kids. And he was this mischievous little dark-haired guy in a wheelchair. I didn't know him terribly well. But I was aware how much he mattered to Helen. Mm. And the girls fussed over him, of course, you know. And um, he, there was quite a lot of little relationships among the group of boys who were his friends and Helen and her friends. Um, and I think in spite of the fact they knew it was a grave disease, um, yes. a potentially fatal disease, they had the 14-year-old's ability to know this but not to believe it. Um, and when quite suddenly... He deteriorated, went into hospital, which he did quite frequently, but went into hospital and died not long before their prize-giving week. 
you know, she was distraught. Because mm. um, it's it, quite sudden in the story. It is, yes. Story. Yeah, he's, the collapse is quite sudden. He's yeah. just gone. It tended yeah. to be the way, apparently, as far as I could find out, you know, the Duchenne form. Um, and she was fearful, too. Quite suddenly, nothing was safe any longer, you know. And um, she went to um, his funeral um, and, you know, she wept and she wept. And um, I remember looking at her and thinking, you brave kid. I didn't write the book till about two years later. How old was she when this happened? Uh, she was um, form four, so she'd been 14. Mm. Um, and I didn't write the book till, as I say, till she was about 16. Was she all right about you writing the book? Yes, she was, she was flattered. There's bits of her in the book. Yes. There's a little girl Because it's a male, is the, is the I, name The boy friend. is invented. Yes. Yeah. I began yes. writing the book from Simon's point of view and then realised I had a tactical problem here, a strategic problem. He has to die at the end. So I invented the boy called Nathan, who's got bits of my son Pete in him, mm-hmm. bits of me and bits of lots of the nice kids I taught. You know, so... Um, but there's a little girl called Nalita, a little dark-haired girl called Nalita, and that's my Helen. Um, she's not little and dark-haired. She's quite plump and brown-haired, but um, the kindness and the sort of, you know, um, cheeky little jokes are Helen. I had no idea if it was going to work. Really? I didn't, Deborah. I'd never written a kid's novel before. Um, I went about it the way I still do. I did lots of research. I got permission from the family, talked to the family, Great. watched Helen and her friends, um, and began writing it page by page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I finished it, um, and I was, as I still do, I was doing all my first drafts by longhand, and I don't have the first draft, I wish I'd kept it, because I wept all over the last pages. I did, you know, the blotch, the tear blotched. Um, and I typed it up, it was still typewriting days, and I didn't know where to send it. You know, I mean, where did, where did I send a teenage novel? So I looked at Bill Taylor's publisher, I think it was HarperCollins, um, sent it away and heard nothing for three months. And finally got my courage together, rang and said, um, you know, I've sent you this novel, do you think you'll be interested? And they said, oh, we'll let you know very soon. And they did, they rejected it within two days. <laughs> yes. I, and I can understand it. I don't think they'd read it, and that's not, um, a, you know, a resentful author's comment. They'd looked at this manuscript, totally unknown name, novel about a kid in a wheelchair. Oh, God, you're not another one. And I think that was it, you know. And I was pretty devastated. It was good. But I made myself do what I still do with rejections. I sent it away again as quickly as possible. Mm. And... I'd had that ICI bursary some years previously, and I'd written a collection of stories for adults, which never got published as a book, though I got some placed here and there. Mm-hmm. And I'd sent them to Mallinson Rendell. Um, and Anne Mallinson had not published them, but she'd written me a letter so supportive and thoughtful and generous. I thought, well, um, when it came to see you, Simon, they also published kids' fiction. I'll try it on them. So I wrote her a letter saying, might you be interested in looking at? And she wrote back saying, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I sent it off and she rang me up three days later and took it. And I still remember the phone, the particular phone, standing there taking it. So, yeah. And then it did so well, not just here, but it won the Times Educational Supplement. Yeah, it stays around in, actually. In the yeah. UK, it's still, it's still in print. In print. Mm-hmm. 
Roger Hall had this wonderful presentation he used to do mm-hmm. about his writing career. Um, and he, he went through all his early work and what he'd done and how he'd learned. And I remember listening to him give this presentation and thinking, Roger, you've only got two minutes left. How are you going to end this? Because he was still talking about his early playwriting. And he said, and then I wrote a play called Middle Age Spread and it changed my life. Thank you. <laughs> and it was a wonderful, wonderful ending. And that's what happened with that book. It changed my writing life yeah. completely. Because then, from then on, you had a publisher I had a publisher who take... was supportive, and I realised I could try. I had stories I wanted to try and write for teenagers. So it was interesting. You know, if Anne hadn't taken it, I'd have probably kept on just picking away at quite different things. Because, um, I mean, I'm trying to work out. So in 1987, you'd... you'd Taranaki had come out. Yes. So you were doing, you were, you were perhaps doing things for Radio New Zealand. I was still doing a whole the... lot of small stuff. Yeah. So I kept saying to people, "No, I'm not interested in writing a book." And I wasn't terribly. I, I'd written some more plays. Um, I was and writing short stories. Short stories yeah. and quite a lot of sort of comment, humorous type stuff. You know, articles for the New Zealand Herald and the Listener. Quite a lot of stuff, little articles meant to be humorous articles for the Listener, but. And I will know. Mm. And there it was suddenly. I'm Karen Hay, and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you about the important work NZSA does for all New Zealand writers through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards, mentorships and advisory and consultancy services. NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers. It lobbies for fair reward for your work and for the protection of your copyright. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about joining. In 2015, Deborah Stewart interviewed David Hill for the NZSA Oral History Project. Deborah asked David about the first NZSA event he attended in the 1980s. This was shortly after David had taken the brave step to quit teaching and become a full-time writer. Um, it was one up in Auckland. I just happened to be there and I went along with some trepidation and here were all these names I knew, I heard being mentioned and a couple of faces I knew and it was an ordinary monthly meeting, um, and I can't remember who the speaker was, but it was immensely heartening. It was like being on a mini residency, in the mm-hmm. sense of being in the company of your fellows again. But over the years, you haven't been able to attend many. No, um, I'm not good at joining. Um, in that sense, I'm not good on committees, and I know that's a standard excuse. But I'm not a good committee person, so I've tended to faithfully pay my sub plus a donation um, and to um, try and contribute whenever anything happens here in Taranaki. This comment of John Pascoe's in 1964, there's not much joy in spending a lot of time administering a writer's organisation instead of writing as such? I think we're very fortunate to have very active people at the moment who Mm. are doing 
admirable things. I mean, we've got the absolute stalwarts like Philip Temple and Diane and folk like those, you know, Graham Lay in Auckland. But in the Central Districts branch, for example, there's a very active group of young writers, Anna McKenzie, um, a quite a strong group in the Manawatu as well. And I'm full of gratitude to them. Sue McCauley's quite involved too over in Hawke's Bay. Um, you're, you're a mentor for the society? Yes, I mentor quite a bit, sure. I've had some wonderful mentors, actually. Um, just a, about three years ago... Mentees. Uh, mentees, that's right. Yes, I've had some wonderful mentors, too, yeah. actually. Well, we've better, <laughs> but, we've better cover those. Um, but I was asked by the Society of Authors to um, work with a young Year 13 um, girl she was at... at Kristen, Kirsten School in the North Shore, and um, Verity Johnson, and Verity now writes a Saturday column for the New Zealand Herald. Um, she writes for um, The Listener, for North and South, and Metro, and it's been wonderful to see her, you know. So you were mentoring like her, was, and she was working on what? On, she was trying to write comment-type pieces, um, what she hoped might someday be columns, you know, little mm. um, articles, and they were narrative-type pieces in many cases, you know. I saw a girl behaving like this, and it made me think of... I mean, that's denigrating to her. She's a really good young writer. But I enjoyed it enormously, mm. that he did. And especially, uh, she would, of course... She would write to me in 18-year-old speak, and that was fascinating. I would crib some of her style and put it in the mouths of my characters. <laughs> so it was a mutually useful exercise. How well do you think the society advocates for writers? I really think it does a terrific job. Mm. Um, I'm actually astonished at some of the names you mentioned there who are not members. And I'm, yes. I'm, I disapprove emphatically of full-time writers in New Zealand who aren't members. Um, they get a number of benefits, the most obvious being the public lending right, yeah. um, in all sorts of other ways they benefit. Prizes, the raising of profile, support for residencies, yep. all sorts of things. Mm. It's an, an invaluable trade union, it really is. Mm. And I think at times it's, like this is when it's particularly valuable. Mm. And it's going from strength to strength it is, at yeah. the moment. You um, wrote... I thought it was an excellent article, Rock Bottom, oh, right, for the New Zealand author, because yeah. that's another thing. The New Zealand author has got a whole lot more yeah. interesting in recent it years, has, hasn't, hasn't it? it? It's yeah. got bigger and and and, um, and an excellent good practical magazine mm -hmm. too. It mm -hmm. used to be really just little philosophical comments, but lots of excellent practical advice mm -hmm. now. And in that, you were summarising the difficulties <laughs> authors are facing at the moment, getting work out into the world yeah. and making a living out of writing and you listed the losses and they do add up, don't they? They do indeed, they, yeah. It's demoralising, I think, the effect of them. That, that Well, you'd listed the school journal gone, Radio New Zealand budgets cut and drop in revenue for authors. And opportunities? Are there less opportunities with the radio? or you? you... Um, yes, emphatically so, emphatically. I think even since I wrote that... Um, I received another email from the excellent producer at Radio New Zealand I've worked with saying basically they just can't afford to buy new material now. Also. And then there's the whole loss of uh, bookstores, what yeah. calls gone. You, you had an independent bookstore here in New Zealand. We did Benny's Books, gone. that's right. That, yeah. And then the drop in fees for book reviewers. That doesn't happen anywhere else, does it? Just receiving a review copy as payment. That's how some, you know, I mean, 
I understand the newspapers, the print newspapers and magazines are struggling, of course, but it's unfortunate that they should cut payment to people advocating for other forms of writing. Yeah, colleagues yeah, in yeah, a way. Yeah, it's a bit of a perversity there, I think. Yes. You mentioned the challenges posed by the digital technology mm. revolution, where speed of communication is favoured over depth. And I love that quotation from Elizabeth Byrne. Oh, yes, wasn't that good? Books aren't yeah, loud yeah. enough or showy enough. Mm. They require stillness, reflection, imagination, and these things are out of touch with mm. the times. You know, I'm amazed and impressed that so many people are still willing to undertake the challenge. You know, the number of young writers still coming through or hoping to come through. It's, it's, I find it touching, Deborah, among other things. I really do. Mm. Mm. But you did talk about how this great volume of young writers are being produced through the University yeah. of Creative Writing yeah. Schools and what will happen to them? My mate Norman Bilber and I in Wellington, we shake our grizzled heads over this. We really do. <laughs> I mean, you, you think, I think of ones who have had one book out and in the eight years since then I haven't heard another thing from them. And I just try and imagine the efforts they must, I presume, be continuing to make, the setbacks they're getting. And I presume with every year they see even fresher writers coming up behind them. Mm. It must be pretty heartbreaking for mm. some of them, it really must be. But you did say I wouldn't change my job for the world. Exactly, except when I get a rejection step. <laughs> when you entered writing, there were definitely many, many more opportunities. Yes. You could yeah. just about, once you were in, pitch an idea and yes, the indeed. say, yes, let's do it. Mm. And in fact, I mean, young adult fiction was really starting to take off. There was that aspect. Um, and also there was still a lot of magazine type um, publications around which were taking the sort of work I enjoyed writing. I mean, there were even magazines, um, Next. Next, that's the one. I wrote two or three things for Next back in, I think, the 1990s because they were quite interested in sort of, you know, um, narrative type, um, expository pieces, mm -hmm. but they've obviously made a shift, you know, in content now to something quite different. So those sorts of chances for people to get their name in front of readers have gone. You've had a number of different publishers. You've had um, John McIndoe, Hodder and Stoughton, Puffin, yeah. Random, HarperCollins, Tandem. All the ones I think you've mentioned, um, with the exception, I guess, of, um, well, I use pretty well all of those, were almost opportunistic in the sense that, for example, the 70s connection was a commission from Mackendoe, just came that way. Um, the Taranaki book um, was a commission also from Hodder and Stoughton. Um, so those were sort of one-off type ones. The publisher I stayed with most was... Um, Anne Mallinson, of course, Mallinson Randall, and it was a real wrench for me when Anne retired. I love continuity. Yeah. I mean, Ian Weddy made, wrote somewhere once that what an author yearns for above all is, is continuity in mm. terms of support and such like. And um, you know, Yes, because, I mean, if you haven't got that, it's like you're reinventing yourself exactly. every yeah, time yeah, you are starting again. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would imagine that, you know, when you were aware you were going to do, you know, four or five of these interviews, you had a feeling of support and, you know, sort of wholeness almost that comes from knowing, you know, that one will be followed by another. So it needn't be a huge stretch of continuity. It can be, you know, a, a medium scale sort of thing. So yeah. That really matters. So, yeah, it was a, it was a real wrench, and um, that was the time when I couldn't get that young adult novel published. 
and I thought, oh God, that's the end of me, you know. But you know, I managed to. So the diff- what makes the difference is perseverance. It does, I think. Yes, perseverance, um, courtesy. I think matters enormously. I really think it does. Um, I've tried to make a point of being courteous, courteous always to editors, publishers, um, people wherever possible. I'm astonished at the the arrogance of some writers and the way they approach and talk to and about publishers, editors and others working in the field. I just see it as inappropriate and, um, you know, self-destructive mm-hmm. in many ways, actually, mm-hmm. I really do. I mean, to read a young, a new writer who'd been declined a grant from Creative New Zealand, going onto his blog and writing, Creative New Zealand, you suck. I thought, you fool, mm. you fool. Word gets around. Who sustains, supports, inspires you now? Beth. She always has. Mm. She's been so matter-of-fact about it. You know, um, when I first went, she said, oh, yeah, okay, let's try that. And one of the best things she's ever done for me is to just to see it as my job, you know, and treat it accordingly. And she has been very sensible when I've had my rejections and my dejections, you know, and that's been lovely if I've had any, you know, things that's gone well to share with her sort of thing. Mm. So she's been marvellous. Mm. Elizabeth Smithers, enormously valuable. I, I tend to sort of thank three authors. Elizabeth, because of her proximity and her unfailing professional understanding and support, and that's very, very valuable. Norman Bilborough. Um, Norman hasn't had a great deal of success lately, um, but he's a wonderful, gritty guy of my age, and we, Norman's my bitching mate. We complain a lot to each other. And Fleurbeel. Fleur is so sensible, practical, we work in the same area and so it's wonderful to have her support, really is actually. Writing and the circadian rhythm, how long it takes to recover (laughs) from a project. Yeah, Um, I find that when I've, if I ever finish, because I always used to have this impression you would finish a novel or a story and that was it. But what I've realised, of course, is that it's never finished up to the moment of publication. You know, you all know, Mm. constant last-minute tweaks. And even after it's published, there may still be things to do to it in some way or another. And it's the promotion. Exactly. And responding to any comments and, you know, letters and this sort of thing. So it's not the clean cut between projects I'd somehow expected. Um, I tend to spend a bit of time um, reading quite a bit and maybe writing a few short things um, and then I'll become aware that there's perhaps an idea and I'll start reading and researching for that. I do love researching. I could put the writing off forever. Mm. <laughs> could, actually. Has there ever been a time when you haven't, haven't actually been writing for a period? Um, no, not really. I've said this quite a bit to people but I used to have this vague fear when I began that there would be a Tuesday afternoon in July. I always pictured it as that, a Tuesday afternoon in July when I'd have nothing to write about. Um, and it hasn't really happened. No, it hasn't really. There have been times when I've thought, oh God, two days from now I'm going to have nothing to write, but something seems to happen or run out. So, um, What are you currently reading? R- writing or reading? Uh, reading. Reading, all oh, right. Um, I'm reading a marvellous Australian author um, <laughs> whose name I knew perfectly well up to a second ago. Um, he's over there. <laughs> Better be careful of this, hadn't I? It's ridiculous. Alex Miller. 
Yeah. Um, I just, I'd read one of his novels about five years ago and um, then was in the library and saw that same novel and two or three others by the guy. And so I've begun reading through him. Big, um, generous novels, very emotionally generous to the characters, quite mm. severe in terms of what happens to them. And he's a sort of a, um, a slightly gothic um, Australian Morris G. So I like him very much. Sounds good. And I'm also reading an excellent book um, on galaxy formation. (laughs) Did we talk about what you're currently writing? I I don't think we did. I I mentioned, uh, yeah, um, I've just sort of been working on, I'm just helping with little bits of editing of a picture book on Bert Munro, the motorcyclist, Mm. because... Um, Penguin um, Random did one on um, Sir Edmund Hillary last year, which they quite like, and they want to try a couple more. And I'm trying to write a young adult novel um, set during World War Two, and I really doubt if it'll get published because I don't think um, the sort of book I'm writing is much in vogue at the moment. But I'm enjoying writing it. Mm. I wrote. The My Brother's War, which was set in World War One, I've had a couple since then. Um, I'm not on a war jag, but wars fascinate me because of the conflict and what they bring out in character. And the last one hasn't sold very well at all, and I think Penguin would be a bit okay. dubious about another. But I'll get it done and see what happens. Yeah, and with interests beyond writing, we've talked about astronomy. Are there others? Yeah. Um, I was quite a keen member, quite a keen archer for about a decade. I belonged to an archery club here, mm-hmm. but um, I had to give it up basically because of a sort of an RSI in most most cases, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, I walk quite a bit. I've got a group I walk with, um, sort of the nice. gambling geriatrics, and reading, um, and just sort of the usual things. Grandchildren. Yeah, grandchildren, vegetable garden, that type of thing, and. Activities which would have occupied me for an hour and a half a decade ago now occupy me for two hours because it takes me longer to do them. So I need fewer. And we love travelling when we can. We hope to go away next year. We'll see. It does depend rather on Beth's health, but Mm. we'll see. Mm. Shifting priorities? In terms of my work, um, just one very trivial thing, I'm writing far fewer short pieces than I used to. I used to write quite a lot of short stories um, for kids, but not so many at all now. Quite a while since I've written any, actually. Um, I think this is part of the fact it takes me longer to do things. So, um, and what about the school, lo- losing the school journal? Has that... Yes, it has. Um, that's given me, of course, one less source to write for. So, um, yes, so the short stuff generally just seems to have dwindled. Um, and of course, various markets collapsing has affected that. Yeah, I guess more of my time spent now on trying to write novels. The picture books have come in quite unexpectedly and delightfully, and I'll be pleased if they want a couple more of those. Mm. So that'd be fascinating. The good things that come with ageing. <laughs> um, there's this wonderful, wonderful comment from Morris G about writing, um, and I don't know if I've mentioned it to you. Um, you sit down for three hours, you get up at the end of that time, and you've made something that never existed before. You know, you all know this. And I think that's just such a wonderful encapsulation. Mm. And, yeah, I'm 
pleased with some of the things I've written. It has. Um, I think I'm enormously privileged. We, we are privileged, aren't we? We make things, you know. And I think it's one of the final ways by which you judge your life. You know, what have you made? Relationships, sure, you know, families, works of one sort or another. And I think we're immensely lucky to do that. You so know. you do have a real sense of satisfaction at what you've been able to do? Yes. Um, I try and stop it from turning into pride or vanity. Um, and it is very easy to become vain, I think, but because you your couldn't. name's on a book. Yes, but <laughs> you're not that, you're very self-effacing, I think, so, and I th modest. I think, I think there's also nothing like rejections and awareness of ephemera, the ephemeral nature of what you write in some cases to keep you cut down, that sort of thing, you know, mm. really is. And, and being invited to go, as happened to be within the last year, to a school and um, being stood up in front of a high school class by the teacher who said, right, pay attention, this is Mr Hall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, yes, yes. Any pretensions mm. towards vanity vanished mm. in this day. Mm. You've been listening to an interview from 2015 between author David Hill and Deborah Shepherd on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. As NZSA President of Honour, David gave the 2019 Janet Frame Memorial Address, which you can listen to on our podcast page. Make sure you never miss a podcast by subscribing on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.